I want to start out this morning by sharing um, the faith statement uh, of, of, of the network of churches that we're connected to. Um, and here is what it actually affirms when it comes to uh, the Bible. It says this, that the Old and the New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. Now, Opening up a sermon by reading a faith statement is not probably the most exciting introduction, um, but uh, it's pretty much a, a standard statement uh, for what you would say most Orthodox Protestant churches would hold to, and, and that's slightly in contrast to what you would find at a Roman Catholic uh, position in church where they, they hold that, that it's tradition, that it's church leadership, and that it's ultimately the Pope who have the final say in how faith gets lived out. And so the Protestant um, Reformation made this course correction that says that, no, it's the word of God, not the words of men uh, that believers are bound to. And so for almost 2,000 years, uh, people have been opening up uh, this book, the Bible, uh, with an expectation that when they do, they're encountering and reading the very words of God. Uh, not only the full and the final authority on life and faith, it's also become a very um, supernatural source of strength, of, of hope, and of guidance for so many people over centuries. And yet, um, this same Bible that's been such a source of comfort to the faithful, it's also been a source of confusion to those who maybe are skeptical, a little more skeptical. And, and the question is sort of like this, why would anyone ever want to live their lives based off of what's written on some old, outdated book like the Bible? Maybe you've heard that, and uh, that's actually one of the questions that we want to um, look at. It's a fair question, and, and we're in the second week this week of a series called What About That? And we're looking at just some, some common barriers to belief. And, um, you know, when it comes to the Bible, I could probably spend a month of messages working through issues people have uh, with the Bible. Um, but I'm going to try to do it all in one Sunday. And I promise <laughs> I'm going to keep it as brief as possible. But uh, let me ask, uh, did you bring a Bible with you this morning? Do you have one? Uh, Right up in the air if you do. I'd love to see it. Um, wave it up in the air. And uh, if you have it on your smartphone too, that's great. That counts. Um, and uh, if you don't have your Bible, um, just know that we have Bibles here. Uh, we want to make them accessible to everyone. And at the welcome table, you can go there and they'll be happy to put one in your hands. And so I want to talk about uh, this Bible um, and and what I want to talk out specifically is how do we make sense of the scriptures? Uh, there's a lot of different things that we could talk about, but this question of how do you actually make sense of the scriptures? There's, there's no denying that the Bible, it, it can be a very challenging book to make sense of. And part of that is because the Bible is a book of books. Uh, it has 
66 different books, written by 40 different people, covering a span of over 6,000 years. And what's amazing is that despite that, uh, when you open it up and you start reading it, what you find is not just this disjointed collection of, of, of books that have been pieced together, um, there's an incredible unity to it. There's a singular storyline that runs from start to finish. And so one way to, to clear up some of the confusion uh, when it comes to the Bible is just by sketching out what the storyline is. What is this book about? So let's, let's start there. And, and it starts out at the beginning. Um, that in the beginning, God created everything. And, and that everything he made, he made good. Um, he made humanity in his own image to live relationally connected to him, to their creator. And, and in fact, there was one thing that wasn't initially good. And you know what that was? That was man by himself. Some of you could say amen to that, right? Um, God saw Adam by himself and he said, that is not good, we need to do something. And so God made Eve to be Adam's complement companion. So side by side, they'd be able to together, male and female, reflect the image of God. And that's how the story starts. But, uh, but our first parents, they, they listened to the serpent's lies in the garden and they rebelled. Uh, they chose to do their own thing and go their own way instead of doing God's thing and going God's way. And that is the essence of what we call sin. Um, and once that happened, everything that started out good went bad. And ever since then, uh, humanity has been in a fallen state. That's how the Bible describes it, as fallen, as broken. And that's not only like past history, that's also our present reality. We are, we are broken people living in a broken place. And the, the Bible's explanation for why we look around this world and see that Things are a mess. They're not the way they ought to be, you know? Um, there's death and there's sickness and there's frustration and so much that's so wrong. The reason is because sin has separated us from our creator, the one who made us to do life together with him. And that's affected and it's impacted everything. Um, and so all of that gets laid out in the very first couple of pages of the Bible, right at the start of Genesis. And from there... It goes on to show how God just sets into motion this amazing grand plan of redemption, that he was determined to make everything that had gone wrong right again. The very first hint we get of that in this book is right there in the garden in Genesis, and, and there's this promise that God says that through the seed of the woman, one would be born who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And that one, the Old Testament goes on to, to, to play out that this is the Messiah, that this is this, this promised redeemer from God who would save humanity and make things right again. So when you continue on, and so now we're here, now we're going to just go from here to like here, a little bit close further in the Bible. Uh, we find God calls Abraham. And through Abraham, he builds up this 
chosen people, a people they called Israel, and he sets them apart to be his chosen people for his holy purposes. So through them, this Messiah, this Savior that he promised would come. Now, their story is the rest of the Old Testament, and it's a very long story. It's a very bumpy road, a lot like yours and a lot like mine, right? It highlights, if nothing else, that the one and only way redemption is ever going to happen It's going to be a work of God. It's going to be by the grace of God, not the merits of men, because we just have a way of just messing everything up royally. And then at a certain point, about halfway through the Bible, you open up and you flip to what's called the New Testament. And and that's where the story shifts from everything that had been promised and where it starts to find fulfillment, Um, The Messiah that had been promised all throughout the the start of the Bible has finally arrived. It says, in the fullness of time, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. So he's, he's fully God and he's fully human. And Jesus comes on the scene and he announces, he ushers in what he says is the kingdom of God. He came and he healed He redeemed, he restored, and then he went to the cross and he laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice to accomplish our redemption. So on the cross, he did everything that needed to be done to bring broken people back to a holy God. And then after three days of being dead, he rose back to life everlasting, undeniably demonstrating that death and the power of sin, and the effects of the fall, and all of these inescapable realities that have been there since Genesis, since since that fall in the garden, for every one of us, had been defeated. And so this process of restoration, of making all things new, it had started. And and so from there, um, Jesus commands and he empowers his followers, his disciples. Um, He empowers them with the Holy Spirit to start this new redeemed community. It's a chosen people again, but this time it's not just one nation. It's going to be made up of every tribe and tongue and, and nationality redeemed by Jesus to carry on that same work that Jesus did when he was here physically. So what we call church and the book of Acts. And so now we're about up to here. Um, nope, a little farther. Acts. Right about here, yeah. Um, that's, that's Acts. And, um, and also, there's, there's books called the Epistles, which are letters that were written to different churches. And that makes up a lot of the New Testament. And it's all about what this new community is, this Jesus community, and how it operates. And, and, and so, just as, as an aside, that's the part of the story we we now find ourselves in right now, according to the Bible, that, that we're living in this age between the now and the not yet, right? Between the time Jesus came and, and accomplished our salvation, crushed the head of the serpent, and when he returns to finish the job and crush him completely and bring redemption on all things. And so there's this process of making all things new. It's happening right now at the heart level. And the heart of those who trust in Jesus as we learn what it looks like to live with Jesus in the lead. And, and his, in his kingdom community, we, we get these glimpses, these 
small glimpses, but glimpses nonetheless. This is what it looks like when, when our Father's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so that's kind of where we are right now. And then the book closes with the book of Revelation, and it closes the story with basically this promise that Jesus is going to return to finish the job. He is not going to leave this restoration work undone. He started it so long ago, and he's returning to finish it, to rule and to reign, to finally put an end to sin, to the serpent Satan, and to evil forever. And so at the end of the story, the way it started at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, that's the way it's going to end. It's all going to be good once again, and the dwelling of place of God will again be with mankind. And so, and so that's the very broad overview. And I hope if you're not familiar with the scriptures that that helps a little bit to make sense of what this story uh, is about because it, it is really the, it's the story of Jesus. It's, it's the story of the Savior. The Bible is his story. And so it's not about, here's what you have to do to get right with God. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's about everything that God has done through the Messiah, through his son Jesus to rescue and redeem a people who could never do it on our own to bring us back to him. And so that's just a snapshot. Um, and whether you accept that story or not, here's what I want you to understand, that the Bible story, this plot line it does provide, it gives cohesive answers to the biggest questions in life. And whether you accept those answers, realize that you need to have some answer to these questions. Questions like, what is wrong with the world? How did things get the way they are? Um, if you don't think things are broken, just look at the front page of the newspaper any day. This place is a mess. How did it get that way? What's the solution? And how is that solution going to happen? These are all questions that, that, that you need some kind of cohesive answer to just make sense of the world and to have some kind of reality. So if you don't accept the Bible storyline, I would challenge you to just think about that. What's your answer? What's your explanation? So that's... That's the first question, uh, the storyline. We're trying to make sense of the scriptures. I want to move on to a second issue, and this is making sense of how do we read and interpret this book, the Bible, in a responsible way? And so maybe the question would be something like this. Does anyone even really know what the message of the Bible really is? Because you might have noticed the Bible tends to get hijacked a lot. People love to cite scripture and grab a passage and use it in a way that advances their own agenda. Have you ever seen this? Like, here's the point I want to make. Now, let me open up this book, and if I can just find the passage that reinforces that point, I'm going to slap it on there. And with that methodology, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And it happens all the time. 
uh, it gets hijacked particularly by leaders and, and politicians. And so, and so you might wonder, is there really a fixed meaning to this book? Or does the Bible mean different things to different people? How does this, how does this thing work? And, and so here's what I want to say. Don't mistake appropriation for interpretation. A lot of people will appropriate a passage. They'll rip it out of context and use it in a way it was never meant to be used, but that is not a substitute for actual interpretation. And so it's kind of like this. This past Friday, I went to the Yankee game. Um, yeah, it was a good time. It was an afternoon game. We were able to grab some seats and... Um, First time I've been at a playoff game before, so we had a good time. Unfortunately, they lost. I thought they were going to win last night. I went to bed, and I woke up this morning, and they blew it again. It's a tough, it's a tough day. Um, <clears throat> but at this game on Friday afternoon, there was a point when LaCosta came in as a pinch runner. He was at first base, and he stole first base and went to second base. And it's a playoff game, so the crowd is going wild. They're looking for any reason to cheer and to celebrate. The chorus of the Bruce Springsteen song, Born to Run, started playing in the stadium. So they cut and pasted a 10-second line from that song that fit the moment, right? Baby, we were born to run. You know it, right? You've heard it, I hope. Um, even though... That song has nothing to do with stealing bases or running, but they used it that way. And, and so here's the point I want to make, is when you see people doing with the Bible what Yankee Stadium did with the boss, <laughs> reject it. That is not responsible. That's irresponsible to cut and paste the Bible and use it to fit a point that you want to make. It's just... It's not right. So, so I want to throw out a couple of terms to you guys this morning. You may or may not have heard them before, and um, I'll remind you of what I said last week, that for this series, we are putting on our, our thinking caps a little bit more. This is a little bit more of like, uh, uh, you know, content stuff. And so here we go. There's two words, eisegesis and exegesis. Now, believe it or not, it has nothing to do with Jesus, um, it's it's J-E-S-I-S, -S, and, and, and they're Greek words, and they represent two different ways of interpreting any text. Um, and so the text part is the G-E-S-I-S, -G -E Jesus part. Um, the prefix is either ice, which means pour into, or ex, which means draw out of, okay? So... These are the two different ways people approach the scriptures. Eisegesis is me pouring into the passage the meaning I want it to have, right? And so it's be like, this is what born to run means to me. It means stealing bases in baseball. So contrast that with exegesis. It starts with, with the passage or, or the lyrics, right? Not just me and what I want it to be. Um, it works to draw out what is the point that the original author intended to make. How can we get as close to, as possible to that? And so when you do that, you find out, born to run, it's not about baseball, it's actually about driving cars fast, right? And, 
And actually, wait a minute, it's not just about driving cars. Cars is kind of a metaphor. He's talking about trying to break free from, from the mechanized forces of, of the society around us, trying to crush us and trying to suck the life out of us. That's, that's what Born to Run's about. It's a good song. You've got to check it out. It's the, it's, it's the boss. So anyway, uh, whether you like the boss or not, when it comes to reading and interpreting the Bible exegesis, drawing out from the text, that's the responsible approach. Eisegesis, putting my meaning into the text, that is frankly, it's, it's frankly, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But here's the thing, unfortunately, it's not going to stop people from doing it. They're going to continue to do it. But now, you know the difference. Now you can use your critical thinking and discernment to be able to understand that. Now, when you take that approach, here's the thing. What you find out may surprise you. And here's how this comes into the whole boundaries of to belief thing, is a lot of times there's accusations made against the Bible that come from this very thing, from taking one passage, ripping it out of context, and using it to blanket condemn the scriptures. One common one um, that you hear, you maybe you've heard this, I can never fathom how anyone would ever take the Bible seriously when it condones slavery. It tells slaves to obey their masters. It's right there. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. It's actually right behind me here. And uh, we're going to just read it so we can understand exactly what it says. It says... Uh, Oh, we're, we're way behind here. We got to go the other way. Ah, here we go. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Oh, man, that sounds terrible. How could you possibly open up a book and listen to it? That is this the reason to reject the Bible completely. But what's the actual message? Let's do, as an exercise, just a little bit of exegesis. Let's try to dig in a little bit. So if you take out a couple of books, do a little bit of study, you find out that what they're talking about here, Roman slavery, is written during the Roman times, first century, very different from what we're accustomed to when we hear the word slavery, American slavery, New World slavery. So if we start reading American slavery into this passage, that's us pouring our meaning into this text, not drawing out what's there. Uh, slavery in the Roman world Number one, it wasn't race-based. Number two, it wasn't lifelong. They were typically freed within 10 to 15 years. They received wages. They got paid. They could accrue funds and buy their freedom. They weren't segregated from the rest of society. And over a third of the Roman world, of the population, were slaves. And so, and so maybe the message for them was more like this. If you read this in context that yeah, you know what, your situation may not be ideal, but you still have a purpose. 
You can still find purpose in it. You don't have to just wait until you're living out your ideal life to have meaning. You can right now, wherever you are, live in a way that honors God. It's actually a message that I think dignifies the individual. It doesn't oppress them. And there's an application maybe for all of our lives that there are burdens that we have that we, we can't get away from. We have no choice but to carry them. And, and we have a choice either to just get swallowed up by resentment and, and bitterness or we can orient our, our life Godward. We can live it to please him. Right now, wherever we are, there is purpose to be found. That's maybe one way of interpreting that passage uh, rather than just pouring our own meaning into it. But there's more to it too. And this is one of the best things you can do if you're trying to understand the meaning of a passage, of a verse, is look at the surrounding passage. Don't just read a single passage. Read the surrounding passage. And when you read the whole passage, this is where you get to the countercultural part. Because it's not just the slaves who have expectations set on them. The masters do as well. It's right there in verse 9. Um, flip to the, next, to the next slide and we can see it. It says, it says, to the masters, stop threatening your, stop threatening your bondservants, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Now, that may sound like no big deal to you in our modern day, but make no mistake, that, was, that instruction is nothing short of revolutionary in the first century Roman Empire. Christianity actually established an individual dignity and worth that did not exist. It simply did not exist in ancient times. And so here's what it's saying. That servant of yours is not a piece of property. That's a person, a brother in Christ who's made in the image of God and you are bound by God to treat him or her with that dignity accordingly. And so add to that when you, when, when you do more research and you find out that when did, when did anti-slavery sentiment in the Roman world start? It gets traced back to Christians right after the fall of Rome. And then you look and you find out that the push to eradicate New World slavery was led by many Christians against the social norms of the day. You start to get a bigger picture. You start to get a clearer picture that what you end up with may be different from how something looks at first blush. Now, let me say this. Does that mean this all got implemented perfectly? It didn't. Uh, it was painfully slow and it was... It was really flawed in the way Christians uh, implemented this. Did people actually use verses like these to, to try to make a case for slavery? They did. It's, it's a horrible thing. But they were, they were eisegeting that. They were pouring their own meaning into it. They were not teaching the plain writing of the, of the word of God. They were pushing their own meaning into it. And so... Uh, and so that's just one exercise um, to, to show you that. Um, drawing out the author's original intent, it's a bit like mining for gold. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it. 
And it requires as much as possible that you set aside your agenda, that you set aside your expectations, you set aside your assumptions, uh, set aside, here's what I really want the Bible to say, right? Now, we can't do that completely. We all have some kind of lens through which we, we view it, but as much as possible, as much as possible, we want to let the, the Bible speak for itself. And so here's, here's where we end with this, is that it's, it's the application, not the interpretation that's personal, right? So, so don't read the Bible and say, well, here's what it means to me. What it means isn't up to you because it was written by an author to someone else and, and the intent is bound with the one who wrote it, right? It's set by the one who wrote it. What is up to you is the specific way the message applies to your life. That's what's personal. And it's going to apply differently to different people in different places and different situations and, and all that. And so, and so that, is, that is the responsible way uh, to read through uh, the scriptures. Now, I had two more questions that I wanted to work through, but I'm only going to go through one. Um, and, and this is what the question sounds like. Um, maybe you've heard this before. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, please tell me, you're not the kind who reads the Bible literally, are you? Have you heard that? Or, or maybe have you, have you wondered about that, right? Uh, there's a story in here about Jonah getting swallowed by a giant fish. Is that for real? Jesus fed 5,000 with couple of fish and loaves of bread. He rose from the dead. This book wasn't meant to be taken literally, is it? Again, good question, valid questions. What I want to say is a nuanced answer is required. And so here's a little bit of backdrop. Got to go back about 70 years ago. This split started happening in churches, in Protestant churches, um, where many mainline churches started veering off in what would be called a quote-unquote liberal direction. So they believed that this Bible was made up with stories, made-up stories, myths and legends that were never meant to be taken literally. And, and so the, their approach to the Bible was Anything supernatural is not possible. And since that's the case, everything in here that sounds supernatural, it has to be explained away. And so they set out to what's called demythologize the Bible. And when they finished, they basically reduced the Bible into um, a volume of chicken soup for the soul. It was basically just a couple of moral platitudes, try to be nice, help your neighbor, and that's about it. Um, so when that started happening, there was a response from what was known as fundamental churches at the time. They rose up and they went in the opposite direction. They held firm to the faith that had been once and for all delivered to the saints. And one, the def one of the defining marks was that they took the Bible literally, not figuratively like those liberal mainliners, right? Literal became a litmus test. And, and so here we are 70 years later or so, and, and even though as a church, we, to a large extent, owe a lot to, to those fundamentalists, I guess, you know, 
here's what I want to suggest. Instead of saying we, le- we read the Bible literally, I want to say we read it faithfully, okay? Now, I got to tell you, if I had said something like that 30 years ago in a church, people would have walked up and set, stood up and walked out because that was, you just didn't say that. It was that in much of a litmus test. But let me, let me unpack this for just a minute. The reality is there are parts of the Bible that aren't meant to be read literally. Other parts are meant to be read literally. And so we have to use this nuance and discernment of understanding which is which. So if you remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, uh, you must be born again. And Nicodemus thought, he's talking literally. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not talking about being born physically. You took me literally, but I'm talking about being born of the spirit. So, so birth, physical birth was like a figure of speech. It was this word picture that Jesus used to help him understand that there was this need, this regenerating work of the spirit that needed to be done in his life that he couldn't do by just being a good person and trying to follow the rules. And so there's a lot of that in this book. There is. Like when Jesus, a few examples, when Jesus warns his disciples, don't cast your pearls before swine. Do you really think he meant for us to take that literally? Right? As a matter of fact, if we were to take that literally, wouldn't we be missing the point? Right? Or when the Samaritan woman, she goes back to the village after encountering Jesus and she tells the village, Come with me and meet Jesus who told me everything I ever did. Does that mean that Jesus literally went through every minute of her entire life and recounted every detail? Here's what I want to say. The Bible, we believe it's a living book. And if it's a living book, it needs a little bit of room to breathe. Okay? So the scriptures speak about things the same way you do and the same way I do. And so if you get home after a long day of school and you say to your parents, I am dead tired, do your parents call the ambulance? Probably not because they understand how you're speaking, right? Uh, I got another one. Uh, This comes from my New Testament professor a long time ago. He said this phrase, I have a headache. What does it mean? And this is where you've got to be careful because some people will go and say, this is what the word means. This is what it means. But you've got to understand the context. And so here's, listen to this, okay? So if I'm sitting with you and you're sitting with your hand on your head, your eyes are closed. When you say, I have a headache, there's a pretty good idea that that means that your head is in physical pain. Somebody get that guy an aspirin, right? That's what it means. But how about this? What if you're on the job and you're talking with your supervisor, you're sitting down and he tells you, man, do I have a headache? What might that mean? It might mean there's a problem with somebody out on the field, right? It could, you gotta understand that. One more. Okay, what if you're a husband and it's getting close to bedtime and you wrap your hand around your wife's shoulder, you give her a gentle kiss and she turns to you and says, Not tonight, honey, I have a headache. (laughs) I'm going to leave it up to you to interpret that one. 
but I don't think an aspirin is going to solve you, solve that problem. So the point is, read the Bible faithfully. Where it's meant to be taken literally, take it literally, like Jesus' resurrection. It is never presented in the scriptures as a metaphor. It's always as a historical reality. Jesus told doubting Thomas, touch your hands here to my side, see that it's really me. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells his readers after Jesus was raised that he appeared to a group of more than 500 people. Then he adds this, he says, you know what guys, a lot of them are still alive. In other words, if you're not sure that you believe what I'm saying, you can go find them and ask them yourself. They're alive and they can verify that what I'm telling you is true. So, so reading the Bible faithfully, what that means is we don't just reinterpret what we disagree with or what we don't like or what we have a hard time believing, but it also means this. It means taking into account that this book was written in a lot of different ways, a lot of different genres. God saw fit for whatever reason to include the book of Psalms, a book of poems and songs, and, and, and there's poetry, there's, there's proverbs, there's parables. It's filled with imagery and with metaphor. And so we take that into account. Do you know that the creation account in Genesis, it's written in the form of Hebrew poetry. And yet it often gets read as if it's a science textbook. That's like using Shakespeare to run a biology experiment, okay? Uh, here's, here's another one. Um, Song of Solomon is a love poem, okay? It's between a husband and a wife, and spoiler alert, in some places it kind of borders on almost erotic, all right? Don't go home and read it because I said that, but, uh, but there are Bible teachers, this is true, there are Bible teachers who don't like that. Usually it's the same ones who demand that we take the rest of the Bible literally. When it comes to the Song of Solomon, they say you have to take this one figuratively. It's a metaphor about Jesus and the church. And when I read it, I'm like, really? I, I don't see that. I think you know, sex is God's idea. He created. Why would it be a problem that it's celebrated between a husband and wife within the bounds of the covenant marriage? Um, so let the scriptures breathe. Nuance is required. And so even when Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, right? So, oh my gosh, the Bible is filled with contradictions. There is a seed that's been identified that's smaller than the mustard seed. The Bible's wrong. No, he's speaking the same way you speak, right? He's not making an absolute statement of fact. He's making the point. And the point is that even the tracest amounts of faith in him are explosive, can do so much. So it doesn't mean the Bible is filled with errors because it doesn't fit a grid that you're putting on top of it or someone else is putting on top of it that was never intended for it. All right, so let me close with this. There's a lot of information here this morning. I hope you're able to digest it. I hope the life group discussions are really good. Um, but let me close with this. The Bible, in the end, makes this claim. And it is one of the deepest convictions of my heart that this book is completely unlike 
any other book. According to Hebrews 4.12, this book is living and active, and it has the power to change lives. And so if you're here this morning, or you're listening this morning, and you kind of consider yourself, I'm kind of skeptical. I got some doubts about that. I'm not there yet. But let me just invite you. Uh, actually, maybe, let me dare you. Open it up and read it with an open mind. A brother-in-law of mine, he's since passed away, but uh, he spent a week early on in his marriage on a cruise. He went on a cruise and he brought this Bible that someone gave him and he opened it up because someone challenged him to do it. And he started reading it and he spent the entire cruise sitting in a chase lounge reading the Bible and it absolutely changed his life. It transformed him into a different person. The Holy Spirit used that time in such an incredible way, got a hold of his life, and he was never the same again. He just became ignited. The whole way he viewed the world changed, and he became an impassioned Christ follower. So I want to tell you, and, and I hope everything I've said isn't intimidating and makes you not want to open the Bible. If anything, I hope it's, it's an invitation Open it up, read it. This is the book that the Holy Spirit uses, not just to fill our heads with information, but to lead us into the presence of the living Lord and Savior, Jesus, to understand who our Heavenly Father is and to commune with him and to know him and to be changed.